Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 61, Revelation, Pillars in the Temple. And in this episode, we're going to look at Jesus's words to the church in Philadelphia from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. And this week's unbound truth, as I will explain throughout this episode, is that God's protection and blessing come to those who faithfully witness to Jesus. And in this episode, we're going to take a look at just what that means, what it means to be a pillar in God's temple, why Jesus offers this as a promise to the overcomers and to the conquerors in the city of Philadelphia, and why it would have had particular special relevance to those believers. And in this episode, we're going to look again in the Old Testament to a handful of passages that are relevant to understanding this passage, and I'm going to need you to be thinking clearly with me because Jesus is doing some things here with some passages from Isaiah in particular that are really important to understand if we want to grasp a lot of the ways in which Christians can apply the Old Testament to their own lives and what that actually means. So I'm excited to get into this episode. Let's just jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 3. 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The city of Philadelphia, to which Jesus writes, of all of the seven churches and the seven cities, actually has a history of the most destruction caused by earthquakes in their city's history. And many of the structures in the city of Philadelphia had crumpled or had weakened. And if you've ever experienced an earthquake, you know the feeling. It's very unsettling. Nothing seems to be sure. Nothing seems to be stable. And in fact, every member of the city of Philadelphia, as well as the Christians living in Philadelphia, lived with this constant reality all of the time. Many of them remembered days when Philadelphia's city was, um, was ruined and shaken quite violently. And so Jesus has promised to the Christians in this city that they will be made strong pillars in the temple of his God is a sign and, and a symbol of permanence. And something that will not crumple or that will not crumble. And so we know right away that the message to this particular church is inviting them to recognize that things that are unsure and unsettling 
are going to be made sure by Jesus himself. And this was particularly relevant to what we see as a small, seemingly insignificant church in this particular city. And I want you to get the right idea here. Um, When Jesus refers to synagogues of Satan and places who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, um, he's referring to the fact that in the synagogues, which were sprinkled all throughout um, Asia Minor, you have these gatherings of hundreds, possibly thousands of Jews who gather in synagogues to worship the Lord. They had been doing it for centuries prior to Jesus, and they continued right on doing it even after Jesus came and then was, you know, ascended to the Father. And yet what you have in the church here, don't picture something like our churches today. Picture a handful, maybe a couple of dozen Christians gathering in this small location being threatened by this, what Jesus again labels as a synagogue of Satan. This was a small gathering of Christians who very easily could have felt like their um, status, their permanency, their standing in the eyes of God or in the eyes of one another was nothing in comparison to many of these Jews. And so Jesus identifies himself to this struggling church as the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one opens. And this, interestingly enough, is a phrase that's a little similar to something we find in chapter 1 of Revelation. Um, Jesus there is told to have the keys of death and Hades. And in chapter 1, that probably refers to Jesus having control of judgment, Jesus having control of what it is that God decides to do in the world. Here, Jesus is actually referring to himself as the one who has the ability to open the door to the kingdom. And despite the fact that this particular church is so small, despite the fact that they have opposition and are receiving opposition from the Jews who are worshiping in the synagogues, Jesus wants this church to understand their witness to him, the Holy One, and the True One, is secure and that they will receive God's blessing as a result of their witness, despite how small they are and what little power they think they have. And so just to repeat the unbound truth for this week, God's protection and blessing come to those who faithfully witness to Jesus. And yet Jesus's words about having the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, this actually comes from Isaiah chapter 22. And I'm going to read just a brief section for you so that you get the context. But, excuse me, in the middle of speaking again about idolatry, which the Lord often does in the book of Isaiah, he says that you are to go to the steward, to Shebna, who is over the household. So here's the steward, this uh, treasurer, quite possibly, um, who is over the household of God, over the temple precincts. And he were to say to him, what have you to do here? And whom have you here that you've cut off, cut out here a tomb for yourself? You cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a bale into a wide land. There you will die. And there you shall shall your glorious chariots and shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. 
And that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. Now, This is the passage that Jesus is pulling from when he recognizes that this church needs the encouragement of him being the true one, the holy one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut. The church in Philadelphia had been being belittled and being mocked and being threatened by the Jews in the synagogues in the city of Philadelphia for claiming to be recipients of God's blessings when the Jews themselves claimed that's our right. That's something that belongs to us alone. And Jesus knows that this is the situation. He knows that the Jews are persecuting the faithful followers of Jesus for mocking um, the, the Jews are claiming that the Christians can't possibly state claim to God's blessing because they're following this man that the Jews never claimed was in fact their Messiah. And Jesus goes back to Isaiah 22 to, rem- to remind them of a time where some person is called forth by God that is going to replace the treasurer in the temple. He's going to replace this steward and the robe of that steward is going to be placed on this man, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and from this man... He's going to be fastened like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And he will bring blessing to the father's house, to the temple. This one, Eliakim, which interestingly enough, the name simply means God raises or God sets up. So here is one that God is appointing. God himself is appointing in place of a former um man who was put there by God, but but who no longer has the blessing of God, this one, Eliakim, whom God sets up, is going to be a peg, a firm peg in the Father's house who will then draw all, all manner of blessing toward himself. And it's important to understand this when you get into um, the setting of this particular church, because what's happening here is that the Christians in Philadelphia are being critiqued and harassed by the Jews in these synagogues for claiming to be the recipients of the blessings of God. And Jesus is here reminding this church, despite your little power, despite your little size, you have been faithfully witnessing to me as the Holy One as the true one, as the one all through the book of Isaiah referred to the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And here Jesus is referring to himself as the Holy One. No one would have mistaken this. In fact, it's Jesus's claims to being the Holy One, which every Jew who chose to reject him, rejected him for that reason, because they would not and could not understand Jesus as actually staking claim to the same character and nature 
as the Lord himself. And so what you actually have here in this passage is something rather strange. You have the question that that N.T. Wright actually addresses it, and I think he addresses it really, really clearly. Here's what he says in his commentary on Revelation. Which of these two groups then, Jews or Christians, can claim to be the true Jews, bearing the torch of God's ancient people? Here, Jesus is quite clear. Those who follow him, the Davidic Messiah, are the true Jews. Those who deny him are forfeiting their right to that noble name. And here's what's really interesting about what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I have set before you, Christians, an open door, which no one is able to shut. The open door, arguably, could be, in fact, the opening, the the key, the opening of the door to Jesus's um to the kingdom that he's actually come to establish. He says, I know you have but little power, but you've kept my word and have not denied my name. And that makes you faithful followers. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. And you haven't been sweating the fact that just because you're small doesn't mean you can't be faithful. It absolutely means you can be faithful. But then he says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, if you read on in the book of Isaiah, just a handful of chapters later into the chapters of 45 into chapter 56, even in chapter 60, I'm going to read a handful of passages for you because many of the Jews in Jesus's day were anticipating the day when the nations all around them were going to stream in to Israel and bow down before Israel's feet. And here's what we read in Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other no God besides him. In chapter 56, verses 3 to 5, we read this, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. To those who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And then in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14, it says, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now with these handful of passages here, we get a message, and Israel received this message loudly and clearly. Those in the end would come streaming into Israel and bow down at Israel's feet, much like Joseph's brothers did to Joseph in Genesis chapter 42 and asking for him to have mercy upon them to feed them with grain so that they could survive this terrible famine that they were experiencing. And yet what's really, really interesting about this is in every one of these passages, the picture, the image is that the Gentiles, 
the nations, the non-Jews, would come flooding into Jerusalem to the Jews to see these faithful representatives of God, the Holy One of Israel, and would bow down to them as those who have been faithfully following this God all their days. What Jesus is doing here in the church to Philadelphia is he is flipping the script and he's flipping it in the same way that God reached in to Eliakim and appointed him as someone who was going to take the place of this Shebna, this former treasurer in the temple. He was going to flip the script and Jesus is doing that very thing here. To read N.T. Wright once again, this is what he says. In Malachi 1-2, God declares to rebellious Israel, I have loved you, contrasting Israel, the descendants of Jacob, with Edom, the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. Now we have a similar contrast. The unbelieving synagogue will realize that Jesus, their own Messiah, has loved this little group that believes in him. And whereas ancient prophecy had spoken of times when foreign nations would come and bow before the people of Israel, acknowledging that the one true God was with them, now it's going to be the other way around. It will be clear that the followers of Jesus are the ones who can go through the open door, the ones who are to be pillars in the new temple. End quote. This is incredibly important to understand when it comes time to grasping big portions of the New Testament, but particularly as it relates to the book of Revelation. I'm not sure if you follow things in the news today or what your understanding is of the land of Palestine and Israel and nationalistic Jews and so on and so forth. But Jesus is very clearly and very directly referring to passages that Jews would have held to as a time when the nations themselves would come and bow down before Israel so that the world would know that God has chosen Israel and has chosen to love Israel. Let me read this passage again in Revelation chapter 3 because it's very, very uh, significant in light of what I just said. Jesus says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Once again, the script has been flipped Instead of the Gentile nations coming to Israel to recognize that God has loved them, Jesus is saying, if you reject me, the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, which all of the Jews still worshiping in the synagogues of Philadelphia have in fact done, those Jews have in fact rejected Jesus. And because that's the case, Jesus says, now they will be ones like those in the nations, like those among the Gentiles who will one day come and bow down before your feet and recognize that I have loved you. Jesus is expressing deep, intimate, and personal love and protection and care for this small, insignificant group of people who are being threatened and who are being persecuted by the very ones who claim to be God's people, but whose rejection of Jesus has firmly placed them on the outside of the kingdom. To those who believe in Jesus, 
he has opened the door. To those who believe in Jesus, he has given the right to become his people and have access to his kingdom. Continuing on with verse 10 of Revelation 3, Jesus says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And here again, Jesus is giving huge encouragement to the Christians here in Philadelphia. And if you haven't already picked up on it, it is true that this is the second of the churches that receives no rebuke from Jesus. This church is doing a great job. They're facing difficulty. They're facing a small size and little power. And yet Jesus is here to commend them coming from the Holy One, the True One, that they're doing a fantastic job of keeping his word, he says, about patient endurance. And I have to believe that this in part refers to the fact that the Christians here understood, hey, Jesus's life looked the same. He appeared to have little power. He appeared to be all alone. He appeared to receive tons of opposition, and he in fact did receive tons of opposition from the Jews around him. We are no different from him. And so they're keeping his word about patient endurance, and they are doing a fantastic job of patiently enduring. And he says because that's the case, he's going to keep them from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, this idea of keep you from the hour of trial, I I have heard it said before that this is a reference to the fact that Jesus is going to remove Christians from the the earth here in in this sense. Um, Maybe you've heard it referred to as a rapture, that God's going to take his faithful people away from the from the world before these bad and terrible things happen. And and we'll walk through various reasons why I don't think that's a good interpretation of this passage. Um, I'm happy to show you further places through the book where I think the phrase actually, those who dwell on the earth, refers quite a bit more to a mentality, to those whose citizenship is in earth, not their citizenship is in heaven, like Paul refers to in Philippians chapter 3. Um, But what I want to draw your attention to here is this word, keep you. Um, You know, we even started the book of Revelation in in verse 3 of chapter 1 when when Jesus says, or I'm sorry, when John says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. So keeping what is written in it is, you know, actually doing it, actually taking a part in it. Um, We looked in, in the very beginning of the Bible when the man was put in the garden to work it and to keep it, to guard it, to protect it, to preserve it. Um, in Numbers chapter 6, when, when the Lord promises, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. This is us receiving blessing from God that he will preserve and that he will keep us. And even in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying, he says, I do not ask you, Father, to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Now, nowhere in the biblical story are we ever given the indication that the Lord removes his people from threat of danger or threat of violence or threat of death In fact, he preserves their faith in him. He keeps their faith in him strong through the trial, 
through the temptation, and they find that the temptation and the trial that he brings does not result in hard-heartedness for his faithful followers. I think it's the same thing here, because notice that he continues on, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So in trial, believers can rejoice and and be grateful and find freedom and, and develop perseverance in the midst of trial. Those who dwell on the earth, those whose mindset is fixed on the things of this world, grow hardened and distant and cold when trial comes upon them. But for God's faithful followers, for God's faithful witnesses, his blessing and his support as one who knows what that is like encourages them, drives them through it, preserves their witness despite the difficulty. And he promises to be with us. And that's what he uses to motivate us to actually carry this out. And he very quickly mentions in the very next verse by simply saying, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold on, guys. You're doing a great job. You're patiently enduring. You're doing a fantastic thing here. The one who conquers, Jesus says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Now here we could reference back to Isaiah chapter 22, and I'll need to flip back in my own Bible to do that. Um, But he says, um, in verse 24 of Isaiah 22, um, they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, and every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. And he, he's referring here, I believe, to us being intimately known, to us having a claim on God of someone. Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's not from Isaiah chapter 22. It's actually from um, Isaiah chapter 56. It says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. To those who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, again, we saw in the earlier parts of Isaiah that the promises given to Israel are now being given to the church because Jesus, as we looked at in a handful of episodes a while back, is in fact standing in the place of Israel. And as such, anyone who connects themselves to Jesus becomes a true Jew. And a true Jew is able to receive the promises and the blessings of God. And from Isaiah 56, Jesus is simply reminding them, I think in metaphorical ways, about having the name of his God, his own new name, the name of the city of his God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from his God out of heaven and his own new name. And so again, to the Christians in Philadelphia, where certainty and surety and structure was always called into question just a little bit, Jesus offers strength and permanency by creating pillars, he says. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And yet once again, in terms of metaphor, it's important to realize that even in the next to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, 
John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And so what is important to understand here was that many of the Jews were longing and waiting for the day when their temple was going to be rebuilt. Many Jews in the world today are still waiting for that day. Sometimes Christians get mistakenly caught up in that desire as well, hoping and waiting for these promises of God's glorious temple once again dwelling on the earth. And yet we've spent considerable time in this podcast already, and I could just highlight a few points for you here. But when Jesus came, he spoke a lot about the coming destruction of the temple and those stones that were not going to be left one upon another. And the Jews themselves asked for what kind of a sign are you going to give us that these things are going to happen? And one of the signs that Jesus spoke at a different occasion was in John chapter 2. When he cleansed the temple of all the money changers, and when they asked him to prove what he was going to do about it, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. In that moment, Jesus took the idea of the building and the structure and the stones and the brick and the mortar of the old Jerusalem temple and said what made that place special was that the presence of God dwelt there. And Jesus says, now with me here, what makes the temple special is that the presence of God dwells here. Well, where does the presence of God dwell when Jesus walks the earth? The presence of God dwells in Jesus. And so Jesus says to these Jerusalem leaders, destroy this temple, destroy me, and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, they don't understand he's referring to his own body, but Jesus does. And so later on, Paul will pick up this language and start referring to the church as a spiritual house where the Holy Spirit is building up for himself a dwelling place for God by the Spirit in the people. Paul then refers to the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Peter refers to the Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor in the book of 1 Peter as living stones who are following the very stone that was rejected by the builders but is found to be precious and sacred in the sight of God. And here Jesus is inviting his own people into the same picture. He's saying, remember, I'm the Holy One of Israel. I'm the true one. I am the one who opens the door to the kingdom, not the Jews. The Jews who have rejected me, who are also rejecting you, are not the ones to decide your fate. Their hatred of you, their torment of you, their persecution of you, their rejection of you has nothing to do with your standing in my kingdom. Your standing in my kingdom has everything to do with me, the true temple. And I will invite you in to share with me in the permanency of my new temple with my father by me giving you his name my own new name and by making you a pillar in this place it's a beautiful picture of the promise of the safety and the security and the surety and the unshakable foundation that is the presence of god in the new jerusalem It's the presence of God dwelling with his people like he once did in Eden. This is the view given to the Christians in Philadelphia to a place where they had once experienced a shaking of their entire city and nothing was secure. Jesus is saying, everything is secure in me. You need not fear any rejection, any persecution, 
that how little you are, how outnumbered you are, how insignificant you seem even in your own eyes, you have me, I have you, and that is all you need to worry about. And so Jesus offers this tremendous promise to the church here. And it's a crazy scenario. Everything's been flipped. The promises, the blessings that God wanted to pour out on his own people so that the nations would pour in and see his goodness and his time spent with them. Jesus now says, because you're following me, the Holy One of Israel, these blessings and this hope rests on you. And now you are going to be my means to spreading my blessings to the rest of the world. So once again, to repeat the unbound truth for this week's episode, God's protection and blessing come to those who faithfully witness to Jesus. And patiently enduring like the church in Philadelphia and bearing up for his name's sake and and, and continuing to do the very things that he's calling them to do. He promises them blessing. He promises them protection because of their faithful witness to Jesus. That's all the time we're going to take for this week's episode of the podcast. So glad you're continuing to tune in. We are just about finished with each of the addresses to the seven churches, and then we're going to jump into the parts of Revelation that I suspect tend to confuse the most people and and shake us up a little bit. But I'm excited to jump into that with you and to explore it together. I would, again, love to hear questions or comments that you have. You can email me those at the Unbinding the Bible, or I'm sorry, Unbinding the Bible at gmail.com. And I'd love to hear from you and we can interact in that way. Thanks so much for those who've given me ratings or reviews. You can do so on Apple Podcasts. Give me a rating or a review to let others find this podcast and be encouraged by it as well. Until next time, have a great week.